So there you are, online or here at home, and we are considering together what it means to be living good news. What does it mean for us to function as the good news of Jesus in the people that we meet amongst the friends that we know, in the families that we're part of, in the workplaces that we inhabit. What is it like for us to be living good news? The good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so integrated into our lives, into our being, that we leak good news, that we, that we extend and exude good news to those around us. Well, today, as Aaron so ably instructed us earlier, we're going to look at the healing of a crippled man in Jerusalem, a man who was carried to the location of his begging every day. He had been like this the whole of his life. He had known difficulty and challenge. He had known pain and rejection. He had known the sneering words of those who believed like the religious leaders of his day that he was under the curse of God and that the curse of God was probably extended to him because his parents were cursed because of some terrible thing that they'd done to offend the Almighty. This man was not only at the very edge of society, he was at the very margins of the religious community. Some were showing their compassion for him, perhaps fulfilling some religious duty by carrying him to the beautiful gate. But this man had known only grief, only trouble, perhaps highlighted by the occasional kindness throughout his life. Let's read his story and the story of God's transforming power. We're going to read the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 3. One day, when Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon, now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his full attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as a man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them at the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and piety we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. <clears throat> now, it's tremendously important this morning that you attend carefully to what it is that I'm going to, say, going to say. Because what I'm going to share with you today will unlock for you the capacity to heal the sick. If you will listen 
and attend carefully to what it is that I share with you, you will have much greater success in casting out demons, in healing the sick, in cleansing lepers, and in raising the dead. As yet, I've not been part of a team that has raised the dead, people that I've trained have done, but every other circumstance that I just referred to there, quoting from the words of Jesus as he sent out his disciples, I have seen with my own eyes on multiple, multiple occasions. And what I share with you today is, of course, out of many long years of experience, out of much Bible study and, and reflection, but also on recent analysis of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and in the story of the Acts of the Apostles. I spent at least a year working with three or four huddles of leaders from this country and around the world, analyzing every occasion where the word Holy Spirit or power was referenced in those two books. And much of that, much of that preparation is the preparation that I've done on your behalf as I've been preparing this series to share with you over these uh, last months. And so this is both old and new. These are not just things that I'm bringing to you as war stories from the past, but of, of new and exciting instances of God's grace and mercy. I was with one of those groups on Thursday afternoon, a group called the Apostolic Associates, who are a, a group of young church planters from all around the country. One of those church planters working in urban Detroit had a group of his leaders join me for that very study that I referred to, looking at the life of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church. And none of them had experienced divine healing, and none of them had been either the recipients of healing or the channels of healing. But they were all signed up, card-carrying evangelicals. And like so many evangelicals, they were functional agnostics when it came to an understanding of the power of God. We have been so divided as an evangelical community between Pentecostals and so-called conservatives that we have separated word and spirit, a separation that you never find in scriptures and certainly a separation that you never find in the testimony of the early church. But these men were in some ways, if you like, the fallout of that separation. And they wanted to find out more. Because when they read the scriptures, they realized that this division that they had been, that they had been party to, that they had been trained in, was really nothing that they could see in scripture. And one young guy uh, was there, and uh, we got to one point in the, in the journey, and I said, okay, so let's pray for anyone who's sick on the huddle call. Now, I'm familiar with praying with people who are right there in front of me, maybe extending a hand, laying it on a shoulder, and that kind of thing. But of course, in a huddle call, they're in lots of different parts of the world, and, and um, though you can fully engage, it's, it's somewhat different, as you've all, I'm sure, experienced by now. This young guy had had a chronic back problem for years and years. The pain was a constant, uh, constant companion uh, through his life and had somewhat affected his capacity to function and to work. We prayed for him. He was instantly relieved of, of the pain. And to this day, a year later, uh, the condition has never returned. He's completely healed. There was no one more shocked than him because he didn't pray with any faith or any expectation. It just happened. He went back to his house churches in Detroit and began praying for other people. And not surprisingly, other people were shocked at the story. And they too began to receive healing. Now, when you pray for your children... 
and you're concerned for them, of course, I want you to feel a greater sense of confidence when you do that. That you're not just praying for the skill of the doctors, but you're praying for the release of the power of God. When you're praying in your workplace for the person that's been injured, for the person that is struggling emotionally, for the person who needs the healing touch of God, whether it be for internal, unseen realities or external, physical needs. I want you to feel unabashed and unembarrassed in offering prayer in those circumstances. When you're in your schoolroom, when you're amongst your friends, when occasion brings you to that accident or injury. I can remember a lady being knocked down in the road outside of the church that I worked in. I ran out into the street and prayed for her. She was able to get up and was quite clearly fully recovered. My hope is for the church as a shepherd is that you, like me, a sheep that follows Jesus, are able to hear and receive the shepherd's healing. Now when you read this passage, it's quite clear that what Peter is saying is that he is not healing this man. It is the person, the presence, and the power of Jesus. It is the person. It is that person present. It is that person present in power that heals the man. A man who has been crippled from birth. A man whose ankles and feet, from the description that Luke the doctor gives us, appear to have been deformed and distorted. Suddenly they're straightened and they're changed and lengthened. I can remember an occasion when a woman was limping in church. She had had some terrible uh, misfortune in childbirth and her her pelvis and hips had become unaligned and she was unable to walk and it had been like that since her baby had been born a year previously. No one could fix it. One leg was significantly shorter than the other because of the situation that she'd been through. We prayed for her. We sat her on the ground at church. And as you watched, you could see the power of God like the fingers of a hand underneath her skin moving up and down her legs and I said to her, do you see that? And I said to the group, do you see that? And they said, yeah, what is that? I said, I have literally no idea. But my guess is you're going to be okay when you get up. She ran home. She ran home. I think she took the heels off so that she could run better. It is the person. It is the presence it is the power of Jesus. So how does this work? Well, it's tremendously important that we understand what's going on here because there's all kinds of ways that the scriptures that Luke the writer and the Holy Spirit inspiring him is giving us an understanding of what it is that's going on. First of all, it's Peter that's doing the healing. Now, Peter is not the only one who heals in the Acts of the Apostles. Many people are given that great joy and it's not just the apostles. The apostles initially are the ones who are extending the ministry of Jesus. But as they extend the ministry of Jesus, there are many other people that are caught up in it. We have Stephen and Philip. We have Agabus. We have Barnabas. We have Silas. We have many other people, the daughters of Philip who are prophetesses, who extend the ministry of Jesus throughout the Acts of the Apostles. This is not something restricted to leadership. This is not something restricted to a particular time, era, or personality. This is something that Jesus does among his people. And as his people live out his life by 
by resting on the word, by living in fellowship, by breaking bread in their homes and living out their family on mission, and by praying. They, they function under the open heaven that we described yesterday. And so right at the very beginning of this passage, Luke is giving us a line back to where it was that we read in Acts 2.42 that the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the... What was the last one? The fourth leg. The... Starts with a P. Prayer. Now, in the original text, it would appear as though Luke is referring to the prayers, to the prayers. There was, a, there was a, a framework of spiritual life that the early church identified with because, of course, they were reforming the faith of Israel. And so they focused and immersed themselves in the spiritual life of Israel. And so Peter and John were doing what? They were on their way to do what? What were they on their way to do? To pray. They were immersing themselves in the life of Jesus. And it was all that was necessary to flip the switch and to remind them that they're under the open heaven. And from that open heaven, they could hear the voice of Jesus beckoning as they saw the man extending his hands. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the Middle Ages, was walking into St. Peter's Rome with a young disciple. The young disciple looked at the basilica there in Rome of St. Peter and said, no longer can Peter say, silver and gold have I none. Thomas Aquinas said, and neither can he say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. There are many things that get in the way, that create resistance in our capacity to conduct the power of God. But the very thing that calls us into the place where Jesus continues to minister is to be under the open heaven that was established above him when the Spirit came upon him in his baptism through the torn sky, the torn sky that gave access to heaven so that everything that was in heaven was available on earth. Not automatically, not continuously, but at least in some sense, intermittently. And why? Because the ministry of Jesus was to give people a, an indication of what it is that God had on offer. The ministry of Jesus was the means by which people had a window into heaven and could see the future that God had laid out for them. It was a witness, it was a sign, it was a wonder that caused them to long for the heaven that God had made for each of his children. And so healing here is a temporary reality, but it speaks of a permanent state when one day we cross the shores of Jordan. And so Peter and John have come to pray. The heaven, of course, is open above them. They take the man by the hand. They ask him to look at them. And he simply says, in the name. Now, we've got ourselves messed up with this over the years because we think that somehow this is a formulaic model of prayer and that somehow it's a magical formula that you need to attach to every prayer to ensure that it's heard by God. That, of course, is not Christianity. It's something else. 
it's a religious aberration based on Christianity. It's not what Peter was doing. What was Peter doing? What Peter was doing was centering his heart and mind on the identity of Jesus who first stood under that open heaven. He was focusing his heart and mind on the identity of Jesus who, of course, always was able to heal the sick, of course, who was always able to deliver the demonized, who was always able to cleanse the leper, to raise the dead. Jesus was always able to do that. Peter could not do it. Why does this surprise you, he says to the crowd? And why do you look at us as if it is by our power and our piety that this man stands before you healed? Now that's a, it's a rhetorical question. It's a question that's expecting them to go, oh, so it's not you? Correct. It's not us. What makes you think that a human being can heal any other human being? It's utter folly. It is the person, the presence of that person, the presence of that person in power, the person of Jesus that has healed this man, not us. And he's here. And he's doing the things that he always did. And we have been fortunate to be trained by him to know where it is that he likes to hang out. And so we do the things that he used to do because in doing the things that he used to do, we get to be in the place that he always is. And if he's there, he may well be doing the same things that he ever used to do. Is this on? Okay, yeah, I was, I was just checking because I wasn't sure. So how does it work? Well, if you want to understand it, and my guess is the majority too, there's a few minds that are closed. If you want to work this out, then let's go back to the story of Peter. Because surely Peter, the one who is the channel of this healing, is the one who might teach us how too we can be channels of the same healing. Turn with me to Matthew 16 and verse 13. And if you can't, then we understand that and we'll have it on the screen for you. Jesus is on retreat with his disciples. His disciples know that he is the Messiah. They know that he is the Christ. But as yet, they know nothing else about his identity. But they've been with Jesus now for perhaps 18 months. And their hearts have been truly unsettled by what it is that they've seen. They've seen Jesus stand up in a boat and command the waves and the wind to be quiet. And when they saw that, they said to one another, who then is this? That question, who then is this, had worked its way into the very center of the being of Peter and the answer came back an answer that as a Jewish man would be almost unthinkable for him to come up with by himself the answer came back he's the son of God that when God declared, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm very pleased. When that voice was heard from heaven, heaven was identifying Jesus as the representative of the Godhead here on earth. And so when Peter is asked by Jesus, along with the other disciples, who do people say that I am? They give various different responses. And then Jesus says, and who do you say I am? 
Verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon. But my father who is in heaven. Now, now the reasoning here of Jesus is very clear. Discovering who the Messiah is, that's something that goes back into the Old Testament scriptures and can be identified by the witness and the works of Jesus as he has operated in Galilee. And so these men have come to that conclusion. But to understand that the Messiah is the Son of God, the divine incarnate Son of God, representing the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, it is beyond the capacity of a human being to understand. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, but my Father who is in heaven. And so this is, this is the thought of Jesus. And therefore, if my Father has revealed to you my true identity, he must have decided that you're part of the family. And so I'm going to give you the family name. In the Old Testament, the family name was the rock. In the New Testament, Jesus says, the wise man who hears my words and puts them into practice builds his house on the rock. And so Jesus in the New Testament is the rock. And so he says to Peter, I'm giving you the family name. From now on, you will be called Petros, the diminutive of Petra. We're going to call you Pebbles from now on. So Simon Bar Johnson, Simon, son of John, is going to be known as Rocky Johnson from now on. Because you bear my identity. But here's the thing. And you need to keep reading. I know the passage quite well so I can tell you what it says. Jesus indicates that as well as his identity, you get the thing that comes with his identity. You see, Jesus is extending his identity. He is extending his identity. And you say, okay, that's a technical theological term. What are you talking about? What I'm talking about is this. When Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, is there any difference in the DNA between those two realities? Does the vine have the same DNA as the branch? Yeah? Does the vine extend its identity to the branch? Yeah? That's what we're talking about here. Jesus has extended his identity to Peter. You are now called the rock. Now, Peter knows that this is not an individual, isolated case that's never going to be repeated because in 1 Peter chapter 2, write it down if you're getting notes, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 and following, Peter says this, all you, all you, all of you, like living stones are being built into a holy temple. Now it may be that in your tradition you have heard that Peter has some kind of special place because he's called the rock. And he may have a special place because he was one of the first disciples. But honestly, he's no different to you or I in the sense that Jesus extends his identity to us. And as well as his identity, he extends the thing that comes along with the identity. Authority. Now if you turned right now to Luke chapter 22, a passage that we've looked at together, you'd see there Jesus describing what it means to be a leader 
in verses 24 and following, and then, and then Jesus extends his authority to the disciples, and he says, just as my father conferred a kingdom on me, I, I confer a kingdom on you. To Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus gives him his name and then says, here are the keys. Whatever it is that you open will open. Whatever it is you close will stay closed. I'm giving you not only my identity, but I'm giving you my authority. Identity leads to authority. You think it's breathtaking that Peter should be so confident, so sure. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. I mean, the level of confidence, the level of authority, it's just breathtaking. But of course, by now, Peter has learned how to live, how to flow, how to function in a new identity and in a new authority. Something that you or I would probably have to learn. But something that Peter has by now fully embraced and has immersed himself within. At this moment, Peter is immersed in the identity of Jesus. He looks at the crowd and says, why does this surprise you? Why do you look at us as if it is our power and piety that this man stands before you healed? It is in the identity, in the authority of Jesus that this man stands before you healed. Are we getting it? Yeah? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's the identity, it's the authority of Jesus. Say it. It's the identity, it's the authority of Jesus. Right there, go on, say it. All right. Okay. I hope it's going to be okay. We're going to go on about five minutes longer because it'd be terrible if I finished at that point and you go, wait, what? Now what? What? Because you know and I know that we need a little bit more to be able to land this thing, don't we? How does this, how does this land? How does this actually function? Well, here's a, here's a question for you. Why is it? Why is it that the two biggest failures in public terms, the two biggest public failures in the church, in the Acts of the Apostles, are Peter and Paul the two main characters. Why, why is it that they're the, the two biggest public failures? You don't know. Oh, that's right, you don't, yeah. But I'm telling you now the reason why Peter and Paul are the main characters of the Acts of the Apostles is because they are the greatest public failures. Just let it settle for a minute. Is Peter the greatest public failure? Other than Judas. Judas is not part of the church. He's, he's killed himself. He's gone. Within the current church, among the first disciples of Jesus, who is the greatest public failure? Peter. Yeah? When Paul becomes a believer on the road to Damascus and becomes one of the principal agents of change within the Roman Empire, people said, wait, what? You put these people in prison. You beat them. You pursued them to death. You're a terrorist and a murderer.
you're the agent of God? Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Oh, sorry, Matthew 16, verse 13 following. Matthew 16. So Jesus gives the name to Peter. Jesus gives the keys to Peter. And then in verse 21, immediately after that, it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. You see, Jesus knew what it would cost for Peter to immerse himself in his new identity. Jesus knew how much it would cost him to ensure that all of his followers were able to adopt his identity. And not only adopt his identity, but adopt his authority. And because they adopt his authority, be available for his power. He knew that he had to stand in their place so that they could stand in his place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. God made him sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The transaction that was required, required the death of Jesus. And the reason it required the death of Jesus was because Jesus had to take our identity and our identity inexorably leads to death and hell. And so Jesus had to die and go to hell so that we didn't have to. And it means this, of course, that because he takes our identity, we take his identity, which is the righteousness of God. The one who stands in right relationship with God. The one who stands under the open heaven. The one who has the name that God recognizes. The one who has the authority that God endorses. The one who receives the power that God releases. Is anyone alive listening to me? And so Jesus dies. And he takes our old identity with him. And then he's raised from the dead. He's raised to new life. And in his new life, he extends his identity by the fiat of his power. He extends his identity to us because he is the first fruits of a new humanity. A humanity that bears his name, a humanity that bears his authority, a humanity that moves in his power. And Peter knows it, and so does John. And they stand under the open heaven as members of the new humanity, available to God to change the world. And how will these fallen creatures, how will we fallen creatures be able to activate that reality in the midst of our fallenness? Peter takes Jesus on one side and says, Lord, I don't think we need to start talking about death and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it will, it's gonna be good. So in verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet he forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according 
to what he has done. What is it like to carry your cross so that in carrying your cross you stay under the open heaven? You realize your failure. You recognize your frailty. You embrace your frustration. I'm told by personality experts that my personality is a personality that's given to unforgiveness and bitterness. They're absolutely right. People who do me wrong, my natural tendency is to hate them forever. I need to recognize that about myself because a root of bitterness will hold me away from the open heaven. The root of bitterness and unforgiveness will cause me to live in a place that is not mine because the place that is mine is the place of forgiveness and righteousness and freedom and the identity of Jesus and the authority that flows from that identity and the power that is released because of that authority. That's mine. But when I choose that old way, I hold back from the open heaven. But it costs me to forgive. It costs me to be kind. It costs me to set aside the past. I need to carry that cross. I'm told by the educational experts that my dyslexia will always be a cause of personal frailty. That the struggles that I had at school being this bright little boy who could not make himself understood always failed every test was put into the section for the children who were the most educationally disadvantaged and were unlikely to do well because they couldn't read or write. That, that feeling of isolation, of loss, of injustice that I carried with me through those young years into teenage life. Those things will scar you forever, the therapists tell me. But what I found was that I could carry that cross and walk with Jesus. And under that open heaven, I get to write, what is it now, 30 books? The best-selling book on discipleship? Are you kidding? That little boy in the No Hope schoolroom? Surely not. The frustration of working in denominations and churches who are resistant to the presence and power of God. Working with congregations who want to be open but their denomination is dragging them back as like a heavy anchor. A frustration that 
activated all of those instincts for unforgiveness and bitterness. All of that frustration. What should I do with it? Carry that cross. See the reviving work of God. I don't know what your frustration is. Carry it to Jesus. Walk with him. I don't know what your frailty is. Carry that cross. Walk with Jesus. I don't know what your failure is. Your, your constant default position that leads you back into sin. I don't know what it is. Carry it as your cross with Jesus. Offer it to him. And in that place, your struggle, your addiction, your history, your past, become the crucible of his work in your life. And you begin to hear that he's given you a new name. A name that's like his name. And you begin to believe that the new name comes with a new authority. And you begin to recognize that the new authority releases a divine power. And now you begin to put it all together. That's why Peter was so used. Because every day he remembered that he denied his Lord. That's why Paul was so effective. Because every day he realized he was the worst of sinners. And it caused them to stand carrying their cross under the open heaven. Embracing their new identity. Is that something you want? You see, this is something for all of us, not just some of us. There's no inequality with God. This is for male, female, young and old. Every condition, class and background of humanity. This is for all of us. Because none of those things count if your identity is his. We'll look at this again next week, but right now, if where you are right now, you'd like healing in your life, maybe it's a chronic condition that's been around and causes you pain and you just think about it now, you've not been thinking about it during the sermon, you've been thinking about other things. Now you realize maybe it's a, an occasional condition that comes back from time to time and you don't feel it right now but you know it's going to come back. Maybe it's an internal thing. Intestinal thing. Maybe it's something that's just occurred in your life and you've got specific pain right now. Physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, relational pain. Maybe there's something that you know you need God's touch for right now. I'd ask you to stand where you are and we are going to pray for you. Do that. And the people around you who are seated near you, they're not going to be separate from you, but they're going to be standing under or sitting under the open heaven with the expectation that Jesus in his identity will continue to do the things that he's always done. We don't know how to heal the sick, but he really, really does. So maybe it'll help you to extend a hand towards those people to pray so that you can focus on them better. Just do that now.
as the deer longs for the water so my soul longs after you you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you you alone are my strength my shield to you alone does my spirit yield you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you I'm just doing that to get me under the open heaven. Lord, we pray for these dear ones. We stand with them, we sit near them, Lord. We know, Jesus, that you're here. We know you're here, Lord. So, Lord, reach into their lives right now. Straighten out anything that needs straightening out. And, Lord, it's in the faith of the Son of God that these things are done. It's not even our faith, Lord. We only need a mustard seed. So, Lord, we expect you to heal. We thank you, Jesus, that you reveal the Father and that the Father always wants his children well. We thank you, Lord, that you want your children well. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you want your children well. Thank you, Father, that you want to reveal the home that you've made for us. That this temporary healing is a sign of a permanent residence. Lord, open the windows of heaven. Let the power come, Lord, and heal these dear ones. And teach us, Lord, in these coming weeks how we might flow and function in these things. In Jesus' name.